You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ernest Klein is the writer of the movie Fanboys. His first novel is Ready Player One. Thank you for joining me, Ernest. Thank you for having me. Ernest, one of the things that um, I looked at your website and it was <laughs> I really loved your story of how you grew up. So talk a little bit about the kind of culture you grew up on in, which I think really informs this novel. Okay. Well, I, I grew up in rural Ohio uh, in a small town called Ashland, which was uh, kind of an industrial town and I was I was born in 1972 so I grew up in the 70s and 80s like my whole adolescence and childhood was in the 70s and 80s and and I kind of spent my childhood like um, I, I didn't realize until after the fact but I had led like kind of a typical geek childhood that uh, I wasn't aware that other people were having kind of the same experience all over you know all over the country growing up in different places but I uh, I was kind of immersed in pop culture and grew up watching you know a lot of the same cartoons that everybody else was you know uh, watching around the country and I was I, I was kind of immersed in pop culture with comic books and I, I kind of fell into a lot of the same interests that a lot of people that I would meet and become friends with later on had the same same interests which were Dungeons and Dragons and comic books and movies and pop music so those were big elements of, of my childhood and they ended up working their way into the novel and working your way into your life yeah <laughs> uh, talk about um, what what kind of books did you read as a child that made you think, boy, I could write something like that? I was a, I read all kinds of books when I was a kid. I was kind of obsessed. That was my first obsession, really, I think, was books before before I, I uh, got into movies. But I was a huge fan of Roald Dahl's books. James the Giant Peach was one of my favorites, and, uh, and Willy Wonka, both the Willy Wonka books. But I think it was once I started reading science fiction when I was in high school, and uh, specifically Neil Stevenson and Douglas Adams and Kurt Vonnegut, those guys all had a huge influence on me, and and I I think that that was when I decided that I wanted to become a writer was was in high school. Largely, I think Kurt Vonnegut and Douglas Adams were like two of the biggest influences on me, and their books made me want to become a writer. And since they both wrote science fiction of a, of a fashion, I think I was drawn to to trying to uh, write science fiction as my first novel. Now, uh, as a writer, when did you first start writing? say I'm gonna like write a short story, I'm gonna write a movie, I'm gonna write something seriously because the first thing that you had that you actually wrote was uh, that we saw was a movie called Fanboys. Yes, well I started, I think the first thing that I ever wrote, like I, I worked in radio when I was younger out of college and I wrote, I would write radio scripts for radio commercials and things like that. I think that was the first thing I ever wrote professionally, getting paid to write anything. But And I would write short stories for, for cla classes and things, but um, I never st started writing for fun until I started screenwriting. That was born out of my obsession with movies and wanting to learn how movies were made and uh, and then discovering that you know these things called screenplays were used as blueprints for movies, so I started collecting screenplays and books on writing screenplays. And then when I was about 26 or 27, I wrote my first, my first screenplay just as a writing exercise just to see if I could do it. And my first screenplay was a, a sequel to Buckaroo Banzai because it was one of my favorite movies and I always wanted there to be for the sequel to get made and it never got made, so I decided I'm going to write <laughs> the sequel. So that was the very first like, screenplay that I ever wrote was a sequel to Buckaroo Banzai that I put out on the internet and all the other Buckaroo Banzai fans really loved it and uh, it gave me all this confidence as a writer, all this great feedback that this could be, this is, this is great. And so that was like, that was really a good experience for me. And then when I moved to Austin, I left Ohio and moved to Austin, Texas 
and that was when I I'd, I tried my hand at stand-up comedy and, and it never really took, but mm -hmm. then I started doing the Poetry Slam in Austin, Texas when I moved there, and that was great for me because I would just kind of get up and do like a three-minute humorous monologue and randomly selected judges in the audience would rate you on your performance and then based on all these ratings, it's like a spoken word Olympic event, based on these ratings and they would crown like the champion of the evening. And so I started doing that and was winning all the time and doing really well and it really helped my self-confidence as a writer. And then I ended up becoming like the Austin, the citywide Austin Slam champion like a few times and that really also helped uh, self-confidence as a writer and made me wanna like pursue writing screenplays like as a serious effort, like I want to do this as a career. And I had had this idea for the movie Fanboys. And so in 1999, I wrote that, and that was like my first real screenplay that wasn't like, you know, fan fiction of somebody else's characters. It was all my own idea. And I wrote it to be like my Clerks or my El Mariachi, like a really cheap, low-budget indie movie that I could make myself in Austin mm -hmm. um, just as a way to break into the industry. And so that's what I did. I wrote it as like something I could make for like $25,000 with no money and tried to make it in Austin and I had no idea what I was doing and had never made a movie before and and quickly realized that like my my ambitions were a lot bigger than what I could actually pull off but just by through the effort of trying to make it it drew attention to the screenplay which everybody who read it uh, really loved it and one of the people who read it is my friend Harry Knowles who's a big film reviewer mm -hmm. film critic in Austin and he's, he loved it. Yeah. He's a big world film critic. And yeah, Cool well, News is like a huge website. I read it every day. Yeah, so. it is now. Back yeah. in 1999, it was still kind of just uh, 1998. Uh, it was still just getting started. But mm -hmm. but I had met Harry, you know, being both film geeks in Austin. We got to know each other. And, and he really loved the script and, and posted a review on his website, which started this kind of domino effect that ended up uh, in the script getting optioned by a young Hollywood producer. And then... Um, uh, so the very first screenplay, you know, the very first real screenplay that I ever wrote ended up getting optioned and then it took 10 years but it ended up getting made into a movie. And I wrote, but I wrote the first draft in, in 1999 at the very beginning and the movie didn't come out until 2009. So from the time that I wrote the first draft to the time the movie actually came out in theaters was 10 years. Uh, in that time was when I started working on my book because screenwriting proved to be really, you know, daunting and frustrating and, <laughs> and I wasn't sure that, that at the time I started working on my writing a novel, I wasn't sure that, that my movie, my screenplay was ever going to get made. Mm -hmm. And I had written another, you know, I've written a bunch of screenplays and, and Fanboys was the only one that I had had success with at that point. And I saw that, and, and the process of Fanboys getting made also taught me that writing a movie is a very collaborative process and you really, when you write a screenplay, it's just a blueprint. Uh, a rough a, blueprint. A rough blueprint ends up getting taken <laughs> away from you and often other writers will, will will completely rewrite it and the, and the director has their own ideas that they want to impose on it and then the actors will improvise so the end product when Fanboys finally was done and was released it was you know it was still recognizable as my screenplay as why you know the characters and everything were the same but it was it was so different and so not what I had originally imagined or intended that it was frustrating to me and I began to realize and hear from other screenwriters so this is just part of being a screenwriter it's a very frustrating profession because often like you may write 10 screenplays and only one of it gets optioned and nobody ever reads those other nine and then if the movie that you that you the screenplay that you do get optioned that ends up getting made you know that gets rewritten and changed and unrecognizable so it's like you're you're a writer but nobody ever actually gets to see very, what you do see what you do or appreciate mm. your work so that really made me want to try my hand at fiction and also just all the other input kind of all the cooks in the kitchen like everybody giving you suggestions on your story and and I wanted to write a story and have it be the way that I wanted it you know, and have nothing between me and the audience, which is, you know, what fiction does for you. So that's what motivated me to, 
to write my novel, and it, it took me a long time uh, working on it. I would I would write uh, work on it for a while, and then stop and you know write a screenplay because screenplays are much easier to get done. You know, a lot a lot less words on the page, uh, and then I would go back to to work uh, on the novel, and I did this off and on for several years before I I, I finally finished it. Uh, fanboys had a kind of troubled. Uh a troubled uh, maturation process. Yes. A and I guess that this probably is one of the contrib con contributing factors, and I'm really glad it happened to, to you putting all your irons in the ivory tower mode of, of <laughs> right. writing a novel. Talk a little bit about how, did any of that stuff that you learned in, in terms of the collaborative process, um, did the, how much of that fed back into the novel writing process? Well, a lot of it. I mean, I'd, I'd learned a lot about storytelling from um, uh, being a screenwriter and, and working within the, the studio system. Like I said, the, the frustrations of it, of you, of you not being in control of your own story. Because mm -hmm. you, it's your idea and your characters. And in this case, like Fanboys was based on, the characters are based on me and people that I grew up with. And part of the story is set in my hometown. So it was very personal story to me. And then it was, you know, I just watched it get taken away and, and kind of altered and mutilated <laughs> might be a good word <laughs> in front of me and 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 there are things there in the movie that just still that make me cringe i mean there's i'm very proud of it that it mm -hmm. got made and and but it's not my movie you know and it's mm -hmm. not my it's not my original story so that you know that definitely and that's that's very much until you struggle through years of that and become a a, a really powerful writer director in hollywood you're never going to have control and you have to you know you have to go through a lot of disappointment before you can get to that place and have total creative control and even then you're still answerable to the people with the money mm. whereas if you write a book you don't answer to anyone um, but yourself and there's no there's no budgetary limitations you can you know there's no <laughs> limit to the scope and um, uh, I think that's why I always love the I always love the book more than the movie because the when you read the book the acting is always perfect and the sets are always perfect because it all plays out in your in your mind's eye whereas a movie you're uh, you're struggling against budgetary limitations and schedule and and just what you can you know uh, make happen in front of the camera. So it's a it's and so so far with my you know uh, writing the book, it's been I found writing fiction to be just a lot more rewarding and fulfilling and less frustrating than than screenwriting. When we read this novel, it's called Ready Player One, and it's set about uh, 30 years in the future, and is 30 yeah about 30 years. yeah about yeah, 30 35 yeah. and. Uh, in this future, much of uh, America, at least, is, is online and spends most of their time online in, in a virtual reality kind of simulation called Oasis. And it's interesting. It's easy to, I think, get caught up in the wonderful technology and the vivid worlds you've imagined. But I think what really makes this book so affecting is I think you've got a really great real world, an interesting portrayal of the real world behind this virtual world. And you've got really great characters who anchor us in a core of emotional, give us an emotional connection to this real world Thank through you. all these kind of layers of virtuality. And so I'd like you to talk about just which came first, the, the surreal world or the real world in this book? Um, well, I think the, the surreal world, the virtual world of the Oasis was, was what came to me first mm -hmm. um, in that like my initial idea for the book was, was kind of what if Willy Wonka was a video game designer instead of a candy maker, <laughs> and what if and what if this video game designer died and left his his entire fortune to whoever won this video game contest that he had devised? That was the first that was the first kind of nugget of the story that came to me, and everything kind of grew out of that. And and so um, I started to think about 
what the video game designer's video game would be. And had always, and Snow Crash, Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash was a big influence on me and actually made me a little frightened to start working on my book because the specter of this uh, is one of my favorite novels and one of the best virtual reality novels ever written. And knowing that I wanted to write a virtual reality story, science fiction story too, mm -hmm. um, that was very intimidating to me to try to write something that was uh, even just a little bit similar to to Snow Crash. But then once I started working on the story, that it became very clear that it was not anything like that story, even though it had similar elements. Once I came up with the virtual world, like this, this, this idea, and by then, like the idea of virtual reality had become very prominent in like a lot of movies and fiction, things like The Matrix. Mm -hmm. So, but I wanted to do like a unique take on it. And my idea was just to imagine what the internet would evolve into in 30, 35 years. The real world element felt like I, I wanted everybody to, I wanted the Oasis to be kind of a metaphor for the way technology is now and the way everybody has a handheld computer in their hands at all times and is constantly connected. And even, you know, if you're not online, you're still, you know, connected to this computer network all the time. And so it seemed to me, it, like in virtual reality novels, I was like, the real world is so great. Even if it's really bad news, you still wouldn't want to spend all your time in a virtual reality unless the real world was really nasty. Mm -hmm. So that was why I, uh, I think the story evolved into this kind of dystopian future where if the real world, like, you know, if things keep getting bad and keep getting bad and then get worse, whereas technology keeps advancing and, and kind of the toys that we have keep getting better and better, uh, I think that was the basic uh, way that those two worlds came together. I wanted like a really bad world that would drive people to spend all of their time in this virtual world. Now, talk about uh, creating your characters and you know one of the things that informs this novel is a friendship between two men one of whom is exactly your age it's true <laughs> uh, and that's kind of and you have some interesting character sets here you have uh, the creators of the virtual world who are kind of characterized somewhat in absentia which I think is an interesting way to to create a character and then you have you know our protagonists who are trying to maneuver their way through the, through this uh, wild game, gamescape, as it were. Right. Um, well, the older characters, uh, initially it was just one character, and, and then as the story evolved, I realized that I, I wanted to do something like this partnership, of because uh, there's so many great partnerships in video game history and great collaborators. And, and I think specifically I was thinking of, of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, the, mm -hmm. the founders of Apple, and this great partnership. And they both had very different skills but the perfect set of skills that those two guys needed to do to do what they did, and so I think the Halliday character was kind of the Willy Wonka was the Willy Wonka character that I first thought of, and and he was inspired a little bit by Howard Hughes because mm -hmm. uh, I wanted him to be a little crazy, really smart, but also to the point where it, it, it maybe made him a little mad. And also this guy who lives in my town, Richard Garriott, who is a famous video game designer who invented all of the Ultima. Mm. games that I grew up playing and he was the video game designer who paid to go to the International Space Station last year. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> um, with his video game money. So he's like a kind of an eccentric video game designer but also you know just a huge geek and he has like a mansion in Austin that's full of secret passages and like a swimming pool inside like with secret passages in the swimming pool and his house is just full of <laughs> weird geeky objects that he's collected and he's always been just a, a really fascinating guy that I looked up to and I loved his video games so so he seemed like a great source of inspiration for the character too so James Halliday who's the creator of, of the Oasis in my book is he's kind of a mashup of of Howard Hughes and Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and Richard Garriott and kind of all the technology billionaires video game designers into into one guy and and those same characters inspired his partner Ogden Morrow a little bit too and I wanted these guys to be my age because I knew that their pop culture because they would have grown up the same era that I did and their pop culture obsessions would be 
my pop culture recessions, which would save me a lot of research time <laughs> um, by just doing the stuff that I, using the stuff that I geek out on. And it makes it more fun to write, too. They tell you to write what you know, so that's what I did. So that was the kind of the inspiration for those two characters was the kind of guys of my generation. It was fun imagining people of my generation, you know, like when they're 70 mm -hmm. um, as well. Whereas the young characters, kind of the, the protagonists in the book. Wade Owen Watts. Yes. And, and uh, you, they have, a couple of them have these double initials like the superheroes. Yeah. Like that. Is yeah. That, is, I presume intentional. But when I was working on his name, the name um, Watts is a character from a John Hughes movie called Some Kind of Wonderful. So oh. uh, it's the first time I'm revealing this. That's, so that's where the name Watts come, <laughs> came from, was from a John Hughes movie. And I have a friend who goes by just his first initial T. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the inspiration for the name H. So the na but the characters themselves were kind of designed to be kind of geek archetypes, like different like breeds of, of really geek geeky people that I've met throughout mm -hmm. my life. And so partially inspired by me because I'm huge geek and um, uh, and other people that I've met, you know, growing up playing Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. Um, just people who are like hyper hyper kinetic and talk really fast and are obsessed with you know, minutia of different facets of pop culture or computers. Like, there are just certain kinds of people that I recognize as, you know, being one of my <laughs> own. Um, but they all have different facets. So I tried to, I tried to incorporate, you know, what I know of the different personalities that, uh, you know, in, in geek culture into those four characters so that, you know, readers would have, you know, uh, uh, hopefully see some of themselves in, in, in one of those characters. You know, one of the things I think that's interesting about this book is uh, the whole sense of technostalgia that you... Uh, bring to it and I, I love all the you know the old computer consoles all the video game stuff did you have to how much of the stuff did you know like you know all the Easter egg stuff and all the coders is this all the stuff that you just can spout off the top of your head or did you actually have to look some of this stuff up I did have to look some of it up but it was all you know fun uh, uh, because it was all <laughs> stuff that I was interested in but a lot of it I just knew just because that was one of my hobbies like for mm -hmm. the longest time I collected old uh, Atari 2600 cartridges where I would have I you know I had a collection of hundreds and hundreds of those before I just switched to a digital collection where now I have all, I think I actually have every Atari game ever made on my phone in my pocket now. Wow. So, but, um, but the, um, but yeah, I was, you know, I had, I had a TRS-80 was my first computer when I was a kid and I was, been all my time in the computer room at the school and like, I, that was one of the unique things I felt like about my, my generation and the, and the time in which I grew up is we were the first kids to have computers in our home, you know, mm -hmm. as like a, as a toy, something we could play video games and also do our homework in. That all happened in like the late 70s and 80s. So, and I'm very nostalgic for, you know, uh, that, that period of time because it's my childhood, but all wrapped up in it is this nostalgia for, for the technology. I loved being a kid in that time because there was this like, felt like I was at the, you know, on the forefront of this whole new era that was, that was happening, which was the, the, the computer era. And also just having a, a video game in, in your home, like that was something new that my parents had never had. And writing about the 70s and 80s, for me, it's, it's the, the technology of that time and all the gadgets and, and computer games and all of that is all wrapped up in, you know, what I love about those, those two decades, the 70s and the 80s. Well, you do a good job at, at capturing, too, uh, that sense of emotion that you, when you talk about um, looking back on these cartridges, it's not just the details and the geeky minutiae, I think you also do a great job at capturing, you know, our love of our childhood, no matter what it was. And because even if you had a kind of a bad childhood, you still look back on it with some fondness. Definitely. My childhood was not ideal, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, as I get older, and I think this is something also, also um, kind of a, 
an accelerated nostalgia. Like I remember people, <laughs> people my people my age, you know, getting nostalgic for the '80s when it was just the late '90s. I mean, mm -hmm. it was only ten years ago, but already we were, you know, start. I, I remember people my age, you know, reminiscing about the '80s. I'm like, I, you know, could, you know, I don't think my parents started to reminisce about the '50s until you know, they were much, they were much older. And it seems, you know, um, and then once all the VH1 series uh, like I Love the '80s, you know, started coming out, where they just devote like a whole hour to like each hour, each year of the decade, and all the pop culture of it, and I began to realize that it wasn't just me. I'm not the only one in my generation who's incredibly nostalgic for for the '70s and '80s. It's like this, like a generational thing. And people have written whole books on, you know just that subject, but that's all my own, you know, uh, sense of nostalgia. I still have my, my first TRS-80 that I got when I was a kid, and, oh, really? uh, and I have all my old programs and basics still on the cassette tapes. Just a few years ago, I, I got it all out and set it up to see if I could still load the programs off of the old uh, uh, audio cassettes, and I could, so my, uh, which is, you know, a huge relief. I, would <laughs> I imagine so. <laughs> I would hate to lose my basic programs. Now, um, one of the things I think that uh, uh, makes this book very interesting is your kind of onion-like style of storytelling. There's actually two kinds of we have world, we have the real world, then we have Oasis, then we have games within the Oasis, then we have worlds with games within the worlds within the games of Oasis. And I'm wondering, as a writer, talk about like keeping track of which layer of reality you were on and, and making sure that we care about the avatar. Because right. that's you know it's hard to care about somebody who if you can kill they can just come back and you know right, start all over. Yeah. yeah, that was something I tried really hard to convey because uh, yeah if there's no there's no genuine peril in the virtual world because mm -hmm. nobody can physically hurt you but um, if you establish that your avatar your online character is something that you've devoted years you know of your life to like building up you know when I think people people who have played video games like understand that like. Like if you die and you would have to start all over, like in some games like World of Warcraft, you know, where it's like the the time investment that you've put in is, you know, um, months and months of your life, then that's a big deal emotionally, you know. Mm -hmm. And but, but once you add this kind of high stakes treasure hunt that's happening, and then if your your avatar dies, then you're kind of knocked out of the running of the of the contest. Then there's even more suspense. So that was something that I worked really hard on. But also, like there had to be, I knew that there had to be danger in the real world mm. as well, and that peril added to kind of the maybe imagined peril that takes place in the, in the game world where people can't be physically hurt, but their quest towards their you know, ultimate goal can be like seriously impeded or stopped altogether. So, and maybe as something like the, what you described as the onion-like storytelling, I think some of that came from just all of the time that I've spent web browsing. And I think just like the storytelling element is like you're maybe focused on one character and then you click, it's like hypertext, you know, and mm -hmm. you kind of go a little further in. And so you're kind of going windows deeper into, into the story oh, and then you have to, Remember to you know click all the way back out because you kind of keep track of where you are you know as you're web browsing. But I don't know if that's an analogy. But no, that makes sense. I've, yeah. I've never thought about that that way. Now the other kind of storytelling you pursue in this is um, text-based uh, games. There's a you can see a lot of that um, the the old text-based game storytelling style. And one of the things that strikes me is that what we realize is that. I don't care how many haptic suits, and we'll talk about, remind me to talk about haptic suits, and I don't care how many like visors we get, I don't care how much the surround sound, surround smell, I don't <laughs> care, you put me in an aquarium full of gel, <laughs> I just don't care. It's not going to be as immersive and as immediate as a book, as words. Yeah, no, I've heard, I've heard people make the same argument about um, no matter how far you go, you know, and how real 
uh, well, it's like the movie versus book argument that we're mm -hmm. talking about before. When you read a line of text and you um, imagine, you know, the description, that it, you know, it, it happens instantly and it happens perfectly inside your head. Whereas, you know, um, if you're leaving it up to a computer to, to render what you imagine, um, then it's always going to be, you know, like one step from from real. So I definitely, I, uh, I definitely know what you're saying, and I remember that feeling too of playing old text adventure games and some and just like one simple line of you know, not even any flowery adjectives, just a simple line of text can, you know, like make your heart beat faster or have this emotional effect on you when you're, and it's all just, you know, it's just text on a screen. Like trying to convey that to, you know, like say my nephew, you know, who's 12 now, or describe to him even, a, you know, a text adventure game uh, would be, um, would be difficult. But I definitely, yeah, I definitely know what you're talking about, about the, like just the power of, uh, of text. And that was something that I tried to convey, because video games now have gotten to the point where, like I, I know I've like been at Best Buy before, and I'll see like what I think is a football game on one of the giant TVs, <laughs> but it's not a real football game, and yeah. it, you know, it, but it looks like visually indistinguishable almost from like a real football game, um, because of the level of of, uh, uh, of detail now. So I don't know. I do think maybe uh, uh, um, without you know, maybe, but maybe you're right. Short of you know, brain plugs that actually take <laughs> over your brain, like the Matrix. I don't know if video games will ever seem, you know, as real as reality. Well, I think one of the things too, when I and when we read, uh, because we're doing the work, we already have a vert, we have an investment in our own creation. We're, I mean, in when we read a book, you're you're frankly, you're just the director. You're you're the screenwriter, and we're the directors. Right. We're the cinematographers, and we have that artistic envelopment. So there's kind of a uh, partnership, and I think one of the things you do well in this book is play with that partnership in terms of giving us enough language, but not too much, to Thank describe you. some of your wor your worlds. Thank you. That's a that's a huge compliment. Well, um, yeah, I worked. Uh, uh, Talk I, about your prose. Just editing your prose. Having like I was kind of um, self-taught as a screenwriter, mm -hmm. and so um, and had written like maybe a dozen screenplays before I finished I finished my book and had sold a few of them and so the three-act structure and the and kind of the sparse storytelling style of a screenplay where you really you don't often you don't go into too much detail in a mm -hmm. screenplay because a lot of that's left to the imagination but I think maybe that um, people have told me that it the that my book reads like it was written by a screenwriter because of the you know the things that I choose to describe and, and the level of, of of detail and I you know I took it as a compliment so <laughs> um, uh, but um, my, uh, um, yeah, I think one of the things that my, the editing process with Random House helped me with, I had mm -hmm. an amazing editor, and they just helped me scale, uh, it was a little too long in places I would go into too much detail, and mm -hmm. they helped me kind of uh, scale it back. So, um, and, uh, and you have the early event, they helped me scale it back even more for the, <laughs> for the final version uh, of the book, and, and uh, I think it, it, it reads really clean and really, really fast and I've always loved that kind of like um, that kind of prose that uh, by not getting you hung up on the language it seems to propel the story mm. faster. Now um, I, I love I have to say that a lot of these 80s references that you drop um, are, are stuff that I love and I 
can't believe that anybody else in the universe could remember that show Riptide. <laughs> <laughs> but we lived in Redondo Beach when that was on, oh, okay. so, so it, was, it meant more to us because they'd be kind of driving back and forth, sometimes <laughs> even past where we, near where we lived. But, uh, oh, yeah. See, I had uh, an obsession with Riptide because I had a computer geek. One of the characters was a computer nerd, the guy who had the robot. Uh, right, right, right. Who, who was on the ship. So any show that had like a computer hacker character who was you know, doing nerdy stuff, I would tune in. So that was why I watched Riptide. Um, now, uh, <laughs> I knew there was going to be a Riptide question. <laughs> I'm, glad, I, well, I'm glad I got to ask it. You know, uh, one of the things that I think is uh, interesting uh, about the way this book is constructed is that we have um, a, a story kind of, you know, there's lots of different stories, stories within stories um, in this book. And so talk about creating these kind of like little frescoes. And also, you, you're in many ways, this is um, like the, the prose equivalent of a heavily sampled um, uh, rap, rap yeah. song uh, because you, you pull all these riffs in. Yeah, um, well, that was, that's something that I always love in books is when characters acknowledge that they live in the same world as I do and mm -hmm. that they are absorbing the same pop culture stuff. And, I mean, that can be done in a way where it's really cheesy and, you know, maybe takes you out of the story or it feels forced. But I think if you do it in a way where, because it's, it's something that we do in our daily conversations all the time. We reference pop culture stuff or quote movies, you know, to make each other laugh or, you know, and, um, and it's something that I find myself doing with people, even if we didn't, you know, don't know each other or we you know, uh, grew up in different parts of the country, we all were raised on the same television and the same movies and the same video games, and that, that connects all of us. Mm -hmm. And, and um, uh, that was something I realized when I was working on my movie Fanboys, like Star Wars was this integral part of everybody's childhood, and even if I'm like, stuck at, a, at, at some party and I don't have anything, and I'm talking to some frat boy that I don't have anything in common with, um, but he's, he loved Star Wars when he was a kid, you know, mm -hmm. just like I did. And we can talk about, you know, and that's, that's something that connects pretty much everybody in my generation. And, and that was something that I wanted to try with this, you know, um, with this novel was to write about all the stuff that I love and not, like, hold back from, from talking about pop culture, but to make it, like, an integral part of the story. This is just something that I love, and, and, um, and it's my, my culture that I grew up in. So I wanted to write a book about that culture and explore that culture and celebrate it uh, and not and not worry about it and as I was writing it you know I, I remember a couple times Google, trying to Google like <laughs> copyright law to fi find out if I was ever going to be <laughs> was, able to publish this book I'm like I don't know maybe I'm writing a book that's not publishable you know uh, and if that's the case then maybe I'll just give it away you know for free <laughs> I don't but I had you know it was a story that was in me and I wanted to write it and I wanted to write it the way that I wrote it and I wasn't you know, I really wasn't sure until I actually sold it to Random House, and then the, the legal team there looked at it, and they said, no, this is all fictional use, and it's so, it's the complete opposite of um, the way it is in a movie. You know, mm -hmm. if you want to use a song or a painting or a clip of a movie or anything, you, you need permission because you're actually reproducing it on, mm -hmm. on screen or in a book. You can talk about any song or, you know. And I even, see, yeah, because it's not, it's not the actual thing. No, and you're just talking, and it's a part of the culture, so you're just, you know, uh, it would really, if you couldn't talk about pop culture, it would really hamstring, you know, your ability to write a contemporary story. So, um, 
so again, luckily, I, I didn't need permission for, for anything in the whole book. Um, uh, Stephen which, King can do it, you can do it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the things that I love about this book is it's clear you've constructed this world so you can just have a hell of a good time. And the readers have a hell of a good time. Because, it, because it's a virtual world, you can write a fantasy novel science fiction novel. You give us some pretty rockin' space opera, too. And so talk about kind of playing with genres within a genre. The whole, this, it's a science fiction genre, but you use it to play with other genres as well. Yeah, and I, um, well, I grew up loving science fiction and fantasy, but at some point I became more of a science fiction guy, I think, mm -hmm. when I grew up. Like by the time the Harry Potter books started coming out and everybody was raving about them, I was no longer really into fantasy because I think I just needed science, I needed like fantastical stories to be science fiction to help suspend my disbelief. I needed to feel like it could really happen. And I wanted, you know, I wanted to write this, you know, uh, uh, science fiction story that also had like fantasy elements and sword fights and, and magicians like throwing spells and things like that. Uh, and I knew that if I did it in the context of this virtual world video game that I could, I was not, I wouldn't be limited by, by genre. And another kind of big influence on me is, is, um, which I'm sure comes across in the book, is, is role-playing games. And I grew mm. up not playing just Dungeons and Dragons, which was kind of a fantasy, Tolkien-esque role-playing game. I, I grew up playing not just Dungeons and Dragons, which was like a fantasy-based role-playing game, but also all these other uh, role-playing games that were of other genres. Mm -hmm. And we would play these simultaneously. So we'd play like uh, fantasy characters in Dungeons and Dragons, then we would switch to a game called Star Frontiers, which was like a science fiction game, and we'd have different characters that would like be in space fantasy. And then there was like another game called Car Wars, which was like Road Warrior, like post-apocalyptic Mad Max, and there were zombie role-playing games. So there's all these different genres that you could kind of just jump in, and we would switch between these games like in the same week. We would, you know, be like fantasy uh, 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 sword fighting, you know, swashbucklers, and then, um, you know, uh, guys like Mad Max and Road Warrior. And I love that, like jumping uh, uh, between all these genres, and I wanted, and and the virtual reality framework, um, uh, and as I started to develop this idea, is well, like you could have not just one planet, but all kinds of planets, and each planet could be its own like self-contained, you know, simulation of whatever you wanted to, to uh, simulate. So you could have a science fiction world right next to, you know, like a, a Middle Earth kind of world uh, next to a recreation of the American Civil War, you know, like whatever, because <laughs> uh, there are guys who do that, you know, mm -hmm. that's their fantasy. They want to go out and be a Union soldier, you know, or so the idea was the ultimate playground, you know, where there's a place for whatever you want to go and, and imagine, you know, or whatever kind of fantasy you want to live out, there's a place for that in the, in the Oasis. Uh, one of the things I think that makes this book also work really well is the uh, way that you describe the technology. We talked, I mentioned this term haptic suits. So tell us what they are, because some of this stuff is actually already out there. Some yeah. of it's not. And one of the things that you do as a prose writer is to give us uh, convincing descriptions of the technology that we can grok enough to say, yeah, as you say, yeah, that could happen, that could be, that could right. work. Um, well, that was one element of my, uh, of my uh, uh, book, uh, of writing the book that did require a lot of research. And I ended up doing a lot of research about virtual reality, because we've, like we've been promised virtual reality um, uh, for so long, and kind of given like a really limited, crappy version of virtual reality, like <laughs> what, with the big, like unwieldy helmets and, and things that we got in the '90s. And still, it's just I think at one, some point people just abandon the idea of virtual reality, even though it's like things like the Nintendo Wii and the Xbox Connect. They're taking us just you know incrementally closer to to a whole different kind of uh, a video game that uh, and like what I describe in the book. But um, the military is actually 
what's pushing virtual reality technology this past few decades more than anything else because they want a way to train their soldiers to be in a combat environment without actually endangering them. Same with police officers. They want to be able to train people to deal with dangerous situations without actually put the, putting them in dangerous situations. And that's where the technology of haptics has come from, like these exoskeletons that, um, like haptics is just the science of making you feel something that isn't actually real. Like just your video game controller on your Xbox, when it vibrates, when there's an explosion in the game, that's really like rudimentary haptics. The kind of haptics that I describe in my book, which is what the military is working on, are actually kind of exo exoskeletons that cover your whole body and inhibit your movement. So if you're in the virtual reality and you grab uh, an apple, that doesn't actually exist, but the, this exoskeleton, haptic exoskeleton, prevents your hands from closing. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and, makes it, you, yeah. and makes you feel as though there's actually an apple there or you know, a doorknob that you could turn. They make these suits so that they, and they're also working on omnidirectional treadmills, which is a treadmill that does, doesn't allow you to run in one direction, but it's basically like a, a piece of the floor that can rotate in any direction and, and you never reach the edge of the treadmill. Like if you change direction, it keeps track of where your body is and keeps you in the center of the treadmill at all times. So if, you're wearing, if your eyes are covered and you're wearing you know, uh, virtual reality goggles and you can't, you know, and you see what the computer is telling you and your feet can walk in any direction without ever reaching the wall and your, you know, your, all your physical extremities. So your kind of um, technology is t totally you know, wrapped around your body for the purpose of making you feel like you're inside this this virtual world, and they're really they're working on all of these elements, and a lot of them already exist, like the haptic gloves and the um, the biggest thing is the I think the biggest thing that they haven't quite cracked yet is the virtual reality goggles, mm -hmm. and uh, but they are experimenting with what's called virtual retinal display, which which is what I describe in my book, which draws the it blocks out all light and then draws the actual uh, virtual world on the back of your retinas with low-powered lasers that don't do any damage, and they can also d detect whether or not your eye is focused mm. and can pull focus. It's really amazing, and it's not you know, completely there yet, but it's clearly, you know, like, where will it be in five years or 10 years or in 35 years? You know, we'll, um, we'll be able to put on this, this thing that will completely fool our eyes into, uh, into making our virtual surroundings look look real. So I did a lot of research in that and, and try to make it as, as plausible because as soon as I, you know, as soon as my disbelief isn't suspended, then, you know, I can't suspend it for the readers either. So, Well, one of the things, too, I love in this book is that you have a real affection for some of these kind of pop culture icons and, and uh, the giant robots, you know, it, it all seems kind of sweet and, <laughs> and, and nice. And, and I just love the way that comes off. And, and it, it seems like a really hard thing to pull that off and I think you do a great job at it thank you and, so and much. making it it's really entertaining too so you really feel that kind of triumph when these totally dweeby geeky <laughs> ancient uh, you know Ultraman oh my god you you know when I show the kids that long ago they go dad what is this <laughs> Ultraman was like um, huge for me when I was a kid because I lived in this small town in Ohio and somehow this this superhero show from Japan like reached me and you know uh, through like a Cleveland television station and it was like the coolest thing I'd ever seen and so different than anything else you know on television I was just riveted by the visuals and then I ended up I think Ultraman was like a gateway drug I ended up becoming obsessed with a lot of a lot of stuff that was coming out of Japan like um, like the Space Giants and Robotech and um, uh, Speed Racer, a lot of like the cartoons and the live action stuff coming out of Japan was just unlike anything else on television and with this kind of uh, uh, um, uh, amazing level of action that I was just, uh, for like a young, 
like a young boy, it was just like the best thing ever. So, uh, and I never really got over my love of Ultraman. Like, he, he, I think just because he was kind of the first superhero I became obsessed with. And so I wanted to put him in my book along with everything else. My wife and I had actually male and female Ultraman action figures on our wedding cake. And, uh, and so, and we kept these as a memento and they've been sitting around my office. My daughter found these and wanted to know what they were. And I told them that it, I explained to her it was Ultraman and explained about Ultraman. And now she, like it's five months later, she's obsessed with Ultraman and got her an Ultraman costume that she wouldn't take off for three days. Uh, so that might be a bad sign. <laughs> One of the uh, effects of your future in the real world, it, it seems that we're moving ever closer to, and unpleasantly so, is corporate indenture. You know, as as the political parties seem to determine to bankrupt the United right. States mm -hmm. and turn us into a third world country. So talk about your concept of uh, corporate indenture, which, <laughs> and, and you know, I just talked to somebody about a book about slavery, and you know, it was called Song of the Slave in the Desert, about Jews, who held slaves in the South. And, you know, so uh, there's kind of an irony in that since the Jews themselves oh, yeah. were once slaves. Now, uh, one of the things you point out here is that, in this book, is that there's a certain solace in slavery in your future. There's, uh, you know. Oh, yeah, it's a, like, it's job security, you know. <laughs> um, well, in the book, like, yeah, in the book, the idea is that, like, the only way, one of the only ways to get a job is is to become indentured to a corporation where they just they won't hire you uh, if they think there's a chance that you might quit. So if you like commit to working for them for five years, then you could you know. And I think the idea of corporate indenturement just came out came from all the years that I spent working at corporations in in giant cubicle farms. I've worked at I worked for Time Warner for a while. I worked uh, at CompuServe for uh, uh, quite a few years, usually in a cubicle, often doing like tech support. Mm. So that all is all direct experience that that fed into my novel, but I, I remember just the kind of the, the way that it felt working for a corporation and feeling like a, just a tiny little cog in a big machine and not, and like a human, that like the term human resources always bothered me, you know, um, <laughs> we're either one or the other, we're either humans or resources, and it was clearly resources is, is what, you know, we were a human no, resource. I never thought about that, but yeah. that makes well, perfect a resource, sense, that's yeah. scary. <laughs> I know, the term, well, a resource is something that you use until it's all used up. So what is a human resource? Um, so that was, uh, I have a negative attitude about corporations because I worked for them for so long. So yeah, that was the idea of corporate indenturement, which is like, you know, I feel like when you go to work for a corporation, you're giving up a, you know, uh, uh, a big chunk of your identity to serve this corporation. Literally, in yeah, the li novel. Yeah, <laughs> literally. I don't think all corporations are evil by, you know, default, but I think there's, there's definitely something dehumanizing about corporations and, um, and, uh, and also, corporations are kind of treated as individuals, but they don't behave as individuals uh, unless it's, you know, a psychopath, you know, or just a, uh, corporations are kind of treated as, uh, uh, like, these benevolent entities, but they, they operate without, like, without a conscience because there's no one person who, you know, can give them a conscience. So, um, so I do think they're evil in, in, uh, to some extent in that they, you know, can operate as kind of these autonomous um, uh, uh, entities with no one person, you know, to um, uh, to keep them from doing terrible things. Well, you also have a great uh, portrait of, of tech hell. Yes. Uh, tech support hell. <laughs> I mean, you know, it really is like the ninth level of hell. Yeah, it was, um, uh, I, I, I love that job. Uh, uh, CompuServe? Yeah, well, I, I did it at Time Warner as oh, well. Right. I did it. I've, for I've, AOL, well, I guess. Well, it was before CompuServe. It was so oh. long ago, it was before CompuServe was bought out by AOL. Mm -hmm. um, and it was when CompuServe was based in Columbus, Ohio, which mm -hmm. is one of the reasons that part of the book takes place in Columbus. Oh, right, right. Because um, I lived there for 
for many years. But the, um, yeah, I, I mean, there were the, uh, it was like a love-hate relationship I had with working tech support. What I loved about the job is I uh, got to sit in a comfortable chair in air conditioning all day and be in front of a computer and work with computers and technology, which I love. Uh, and also, you have access to the internet all day, which is a huge a morale booster for me and a job. If I have access to the internet and I can look at pop culture websites and like, you know, read, you know, Knight Rider episode <laughs> synopsis and stuff <laughs> while I'm at work, you know, to take my mind off of work, then that makes me very happy. But but yeah, just like helping helping the average person who maybe like fears technology, try to use technology could end up being very very frustrating. So t tech support is a, a, a can definitely be like, you know, Dante's Inferno at times, but it, it, you know, it's a good job too. You do a good job too, I think, of, of capturing uh, as well the kind of surveillance culture of that's in, endemic in corporate, and, and also because it's easy to forget that when you set a novel in the future to think it's about the future, but you're actually living in the present unless you've got a time machine squirreled away somewhere. Right, right. right. And this novel is really speaks a lot to the present. So when you talk about the surveillance culture in your book, it just made me th remember that, you know, maybe in your book it's ILI that knows everything. I, in reality, actually, it's Safeway who has the hugest <laughs> database. Hey, Safeway knows everything I've bought in the past 20 years that I've lived here. They could tell you. Wow. <laughs> I never even, you know, I when you start to think about that, it's kind of scary. And your cell phone provider knows where, where and when you bought all those, you know, all those things. You really are. Like, if you have a cell phone, you're kind of, you're under surveillance, you know, um, at all times uh, now. All the technology and all of that, you know, uh, uh, in the book, I, I took great pains to, because I, I hate it when I read a science fiction book, especially if it's maybe a 10-year-old book, and, and the writer has, has gone into too much detail and, and, and gotten s things wrong mm. um, about the way the future is. Um, and, uh, and that takes you out of the story, because you're like, oh, that didn't happen. And then, and, um, but if you're just general enough to make it believable and not go into too much unnecessary detail, then you, you, know, you can keep the reader disbeliefs suspended. Now, uh, you've created a great world in this book. I'm wondering if you're going to explore it some more or if you have created other worlds to explore. Um, I, uh, you know, I love these characters and I, and I love this book and I would love to um, uh, explore it some more. I think it, I haven't decided yet. Everybody's, I'm already getting pressure from a lot of people to write a sequel. Um, mm -hmm. I never thought of it as a, I was just so focused on just finishing this one book that, mm -hmm. I, you know, there, there definitely could be more stories, but I haven't, you know, I've only just now started to think about what a sequel might be down the road. I do, however, have, for a few years now, I've been working on a, a, an idea that's uh, maybe um, kind of a prequel to mm -hmm. Ready Player One, that, and it's more of a screenplay idea, and it would be, it's this high school, it's my, it would be my high school movie, kind of my days confused, but with, you know, hot, with, with computers and Dungeons and Dragons instead of hot rods and drug use. It would be, like, I, I just want to do, like, kind of a, a great 80s coming-of-age story, and mm -hmm. it would be um, set in the, in the same hometown as Halliday and Morrow are from in my, uh, uh, in my book. So, um, and they might be characters in it, you know, as teenagers. But I want to do, like, a coming-of-age story set in the 80s that, that is similar to Ready Player One in that it, you know, celebrates 80s culture, but um, I don't feel like there's been a great, like, there's been great um, movies about coming-of-age in the 50s, like, uh, like Stand By Me, and mm -hmm. great movies about coming of age in the 60s and uh, 70s, like Days Confused, but I don't think there's been a great um, uh, story about being a geek and growing up in the 80s, so that, that's what I'm working on next. Sort of, but uh, so, sounds um, 
like you'll be uh, <laughs> writing uh, your own John Hughes movie. Yeah, I would love to do that. Uh, and John Hughes, you know, is like a huge influence on me, and he was one of the reasons that I wanted to uh, 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 to get involved in screenwriting in the first place. So, um, and you can, uh, you know, and I'm sure you saw in my book. There's a lot of John Hughes oh, yeah. uh, influence <laughs> I, as well. So I would love to, you know, he's, you know, I would love to to take a shot at a John Hughes movie. Well, I think that's one of the things that makes this book so affecting is that you, you capture the emotions of the John Hughes kind of movies, but you do it in a kind of neuromancer context, <laughs> and I think that's really a cool thing. Yeah, I, thank you so much. Um, I, uh, uh, um, that's what I was trying to do, so I guess it worked. Success. <laughs> it worked with you, at least. Ready Player One. I've been speaking with uh, Ernest Klein. His new book is... Ready Player One. I'm not sure. Will the cover look like this? No, that's just the ARC cover, the final cover. Well, you can see it online. Oh. Yeah. Thanks for joining me, Ernest. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.